Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, joined by my esteemed co-host, Jessica Stone. Jessica, always good to see you. How, how are you doing? Good to see you too. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. And we are co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest, Daniel Lippman, is a reporter for Politico covering the White House and Washington. He was one of the co-authors of Politico's playbook, The Unofficial Guide to Official Washington. Prior to Politico, Daniel worked for outlets such as Reuters, McClatchy Newspapers, Huffington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And very much like one of our prior guests, Julie Mason, Daniel is one of today's staunchest ambassadors for good journalism and champions of good journalists. Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Good to have you. Great to have you. So you're originally from Western Massachusetts? I am. So I'm from a place called the Berkshires, a town called Great Barrington, which is a town of about 7,000 people. It's a pretty liberal area, which is kind of surprising when uh, out of the 400 people who have been arrested from, you know, in the Capitol riots, you know, my small county of 120,000 people, three of them have been you know, in that 400 uh, group. And so I get my local newspaper sends out breaking news alerts every time a new person from the Berkshires gets arrested. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. But it's kind of a reminder that the people who stormed the Capitol came from all walks of life, you know, from all areas of the country including pretty you know areas that are full of former hippies and uh people who you know eat granola and like organic food and arugula wow that's not necessarily a distinction for your hometown that you'd you'd want but i i wonder i know they're not from my hometown but the home county and so there's okay. parts of the area he wants I, a little but, separation there Corey. come on yeah 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 <laughs> plausible deniability and i don't know any of those people so. <laughs> You should have had the exclusive if you did, right? I know. Interestingly, I live in LA County and LA County is very, very, you know, it's like Democrat plus 30 or something. But I live in a town, a little, the Santa Clarita Valley, that historically has been very, very red. We had Buck McKeon serve as our, our oh, congressman yeah. here for, you know, 20 something years. And it's just recently with uh, some expansion, suburban sprawl, you know, we're kind of like the new Orange County that we're, you know, uh, Katie Hill was our representative here for a year and a half, but it went back to red. So it's an interesting little enclave within L.A. County. It, one thing I wanted to ask you about it is it looks like you identified journalism as something that you were passionate about from a very early age. Is that right? Yeah. And so growing up in a small town, uh, you know, I was 11 and a half 
when 9-11 hit and we didn't have a TV growing up in terms of cable news or even that network news. And so I started reading the newspaper and got really interested in stuff that was happening all around the world that was more exciting and more interesting than you know my local hometown. And so uh, that's how I kind of got my interest in journalism. I also would send in links uh, and you know typos and corrections to reporters um, when I was in high school and college uh, you know, thousands of times uh, you know when I see errors that they had written us you're working for a major news outlet shouldn't you at least read your story after it gets published if not before <laughs> and so Politico profiled me uh, for doing that and then I had when I was in high school I got another write-up in the New Yorker because I would um, you know, the Bush White House had something called Ask the White House, which was an online blog form where anyone, regular Americans could submit questions to senior officials and they would get answered in a Q&A format. And so I submitted a lot of questions and uh, many of them were answered. I have to ask you, Daniel, if you ever ran up against any of the journalists that you plagued with your typo <laughs> corrections later in life, and if any of them ever knew that it was you and, and had words with you or if it, it created any waves in your relationships in Washington? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. Most of them were actually pretty grateful at, at having a reader that was uh, curious enough and would read their entire story instead of just the headline or the first few paragraphs. And so I got mostly good feedback, but you know, I've definitely had some a couple encounters uh, where people were, were, you know, aren't you the guy that would send in those type of emails, which I did not appreciate. And if someone said when I was doing that, they said, don't email me, I would of course respect that. And But most people do not say that. A lot of people just said thank you or they didn't uh, reply. Hmm. Was, was there an objective there? Did you want to make a connection? Was it your sort of tool that you used in order to make a connection with journalists? Or was it just that you know, like my mother was a 35 year kindergarten teacher and she's one of those, I'm <laughs> correcting your grammar as you're speaking kind of a person. I guess I'm very detail oriented and, you know, obsessed with facts and making sure everything is correct. And so kind of type A in that way, but it was not meant as a, you know, I want to get ahead or I want to make a ton of connections. And so I only kind of only use the utility of that after when I realized, hey, you know, can I get a tour of your newsroom or, you know, can we get coffee? Uh, and then, so it was not, I did not start it with the intention of kind of leveraging it for job, you know, internships and all that. And one of the, one person I remember who worked for a wire service, he said, I have, I garden as a hobby. Why is sending typo emails <laughs> one of your hobbies? And so it was actually just a kind of fun hobby. I, I was surprised that they, uh, the copy editing uh, machinery in American newsrooms had been uh, steadily declining because, you know, they've faced cutbacks in recent years. Mm. Yeah. I'm wondering if you're the kind of person that diagrams sentences too back in the day. You've got that strange pleasure about charting a sentence and finding where the pronoun goes versus the object and all that. Not like... You quite at that level? <laughs> <laughs> not at the, you know, in real time as much. I know some people who are and they will you know, correct me sometimes, but the, you know, I'm more a kind of on the written page. I see stuff that mm. would jump out at me. So every time I read, every, you know, I always read my stories before they go up, but I read them after too, because sometimes when it's published, you see there's a missing comma, but 
I, I don't send those uh, emails anymore. Uh, sometimes I'll see something that should be fixed on uh, our website, a small little thing, and then I'll email our production team. But yeah. besides that, I'm kind of out of the correction business. You know, it makes sense that that was one of your hobbies because one of your first jobs in co- when you were in college was as a fact checker. How did that, that must come in really handy now. Um, I was curious how that informs how you've gone about your work as a journalist going forward. Yeah, so I guess I it was not as much about being a fact checker. Basically, I was, you know, my first full-time job uh, out of college was working for Mike Allen as the researcher and then eventually the co-writer of, of Playbook. And so I guess having the experience and just the knowledge of how facts are so important in journalism that if you don't have the, if you don't spell people's names properly or get people's titles right, then, and people notice that, especially if you have informed readers, then how can they trust the credibility or how can they believe the rest of your, what you're writing, especially in a uh, highly charged partisan atmosphere where both sides are looking for anything small that they can use uh, against the media. And then during the Trump administration, the media was kind of the enemy. We didn't want to be, uh, at least among nonpartisan journalists. It's not why I went into journalism to do battle against or for any political party. It's more about uh, investigating and holding power accountable. And there's a market for that. And so with Playbook, it was a lot of discrete facts, you know, fact-checking the birthdays or getting, making sure- Oh my gosh, that that sounds so arduous. There's a lot of birthdays in Playbook. (laughs) Making sure that people's transitions were described properly in terms of what people's next jobs were in DC. And, you know, it's all these different items that make up Playbook. You you really want to kind of have that as iron tight as possible. And so, especially with, you know, I remember- Sometimes a newsletter will say it's Monday when it's actually Tuesday. That happens like maybe once a year for, you know, people sleep deprived. Uh, but so we'd always get a, a number of emails if that happened. But I think that's kind of been a, uh, that hasn't happened in a while, thank God. But, and I'm not involved in, we have a whole new playbook team that is doing a great job uh, that started in January. I'm really excited by what they're doing with the product, but you know, I'm still a dedicated uh, reader and will flag things to them as well. I want to pick up on what you said about Mike Allen. I came to town right as he was starting Politico in 07. And, um, you know, for, for the audience that may not know Mike's name as broadly as, he, I mean, he is a legend in Washington <laughs> political journalism. Did He really took you under his wing. What What is it that you think he saw in you? And is there a singular bit of wisdom he passed on that you find you, you still use or rely on to this day? I think he kind of saw that we were similar people in some respects in terms of just being news junkies and sponges for information and facts and you know news about the media too. And so sometimes that can get characterized as navel gazing, but journalists love to read about other journalists. Uh, and there's a lot of people who aren't in journalism who like to read about media as well. And so I think it was kind of a, we like the, uh, you know, politics, just kind of tracking the, it's, it's a horse race too, but it's also, there's real impacts on society. And so, you know, not losing sight of that. And so I think he, you know, he kind of saw 
someone that he could mentor. And I was very grateful and I am very grateful for uh, that. And I think also, you know, one, one lesson he gave to me, which was you know, treat everybody every day like it's their birthday, which is kind of, a, you know, a motto for being nice to people. And so maybe I'm sometimes too nice <laughs> and you never want to be taken advantage of uh, for one's niceness. But well, and then, of course, he actually knows everybody's birthday on top of that. Yeah. Now you do, too. So you can call people on their birthday. Have you ever done that? <laughs> I, I text people a lot, you know, just to wish them happy birthday. And But I think the lesson from that was if you want to have a long career in Washington, you don't want to make too many enemies. And you want to feel like that people you deal with that you're square with them and that you're even if you're writing a tough story that you are giving them the fair shake and that you're really describing accurately you know what happens in Washington and so that's a, a very highly held principle to Mike and to me and it's drilled into every journalist at Politico and every other uh, major reputable outlet. What are some of the ways that you learned how to do good reporting and to learn how to write well? So I had great English teachers at uh, my high school at Hotchkiss, and uh, it was a boarding school in Connecticut. And then I had good teachers at my elementary and middle school, which my grandmother actually founded. So at one point, she had like six grandkids going to, to this school, a Steiner school at the same time. And so there was no, uh, we didn't have standardized tests. It was a private school. And so you know, we weren't taking the, there's a Massachusetts standardized test called the M. CAS, I think. And so it was more about like, it was kind of a Montessori type school in terms of teaching the importance of creativity and being not kind of following your interests. And so if your parents are consultants or doctors, that doesn't mean necessarily you should be one too. And so you should just follow kind of where your interests and your passions lie, because that's where you will do much better and enjoy your career much more. And so in terms of reporting, I, when I was working on Playbook, I didn't have a ton of time to do standalone stories since uh, it was a pretty rigorous space of just, there's so many source emails to answer and people wanting their jobs or their links or articles in Playbook. And, and so that was when I had an idea, I would you know, go to Mike and say, is this a good idea? And then he would say yes or no. And then I would get usually another editor to actually edit the piece. And so you just kind of learn with, you know, one of my editors was Rick Burke, who was, he started STAT, which has you know, done pretty well covering the coronavirus pandemic, a health and science publication. Yeah. Michael Crowley has been, he was my editor for a little bit. Uh, my current editor, uh, Blake Hounshell, he's a managing editor for Washington politics. And I'm very grateful to him. And he's just a supreme editor and seeing where the story is and, you know, how I can kind of tell it. Um, because without a good editor, you don't, reporters, unless you have a substack that you have, you've hired some editor for, you know, you really need someone to push you to say, hey, have you talked to this person or have you, here's some ideas and here's how we should structure the story. And so, it's kind of just like any craft in terms of you learn by doing and you know that you should never take shortcuts and that 
you know, I try to not tweet that much in terms of, especially not opinions, but just in general, if I'm on, if I'm on Twitter, then that means, and I see what people have reported already, that means I have not, you know, that means that it's already out there. And so I try to stay off Twitter as much as possible because I will not be able to get an original scoop that way. Sometimes you'll get sources on, on Twitter that will reach out to you. But if it's already tweeted about, uh, then usually that means that it's kind of too late to uh, report on, for at least for me, since I'm covering more, I'm breaking news, I'm not covering as much the day-to-day, you know, what, what did Biden say today? What is a cabinet secretary? You know, I'm not going to cabinet departments and writing down what, uh, you know, what they say at a press conference. That must be a very difficult balance now, trying to, trying to balance between breaking a story and getting it right. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you figure out that, that tension? I think it's just a matter of having good sources and uh, sources that are trustworthy. And then if you have sources that mislead you, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't deal with them. And so it's kind of uh, built on trust and also due diligence and, and uh, working to, you know, verify the information and making sure that you've uh, had a, you know, you have stories that actually, you know, that hold up. During the Trump administration, the, 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 we were kind of drinking from a higher fire hose. Yeah. And during the Biden administration, it's much more, it's a little more state and there's less palace entry. And so that is, that kind of makes it a little harder for journalists like myself to cover chaos in the presidential administration or the White House if there's less chaos. And so we're not going to make up the chaos. And so, uh, but there, you know, there's 1400 political appointees, at least, uh, you know, there will people be, people will trip up. I've already written about two chiefs of staff at various Biden cabinet level departments. So one was, you know, she planned a 50 person indoor party celebrating Deb Holland's confirmation at the interior department, and they had to cancel it after coronavirus concerns. And so then she later was pushed out by the White House and moved to be a senior counselor at the Interior Department. Another person a week or so later uh, was the presumptive chief of staff at the U.S. mission to the U.N. And she had issues with her security clearance. It was revoked. And so you know, I broke the news on that. And so it's kind of finding those sweet spots where you can make an impact and uh, you can move the ball forward. Uh, because usually these government agencies and people in power, they, they would rather just have it kind of, they're not going to go, they're not going to preemptively leak that usually. And so, but it's important stories to be told and people are interested in those types of pieces. I'm curious um, because you did cover the white house um, when you were doing the playbook as well. So you've covered the Trump administration, how you see the difference in the evolution of the press corps. I mean, we are not seeing every, briefing televised like we were in the beginning of the Trump administration. And I know there's concern that the press corps should be uh, as dogged as it was under Trump. Do you do you think there's a temptation not to be because there isn't the same acrimony between the, the person in the White House and the press corps? I think there's less acrimony because we're not being accused of being 
you know, fake news and uh, the enemy not, of the people. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. And so, uh, but I think there's there should still be a healthy tension because, you know, I didn't go into journalism to do PR for any administration. And so they have tons of PR people that, you know, they've hired in communications roles. Um, I think there was a stat that, you know, there's like seven PR people to journalists just across America in terms of industry. Uh, mm. And that trend has gotten worse. And so when I kind of get random pitches from people pitching uh, energy news from Houston for like from a big PR firm, I'm thinking, don't they, uh, don't they know what I cover, <laughs> um, which is not uh, energy usually. And so, uh, but I think there is a, um, you know, journalists are, should be asking tough questions of the Biden administration in terms of, are they going to work with how, how effectively are they going to work with Republicans to make uh, the infrastructure package bipartisan? Are they, you know, is there a Russia and North Korea and Iran strategy working when you have Iran kind of being suspected of targeting Israel and the other and uh, vice versa? And, you know, are you going to, you know, how can you be effective in terms of climate change if, if you're not asking agriculture to do their part? And so there's plenty of policy and some personnel questions that uh, you know should be asked of uh, Jen Psaki and uh, others in the administration and Biden himself. He doesn't seem to have, you know, he's only had one press conference in his first hundred days. Yeah, he, he's trying to limit that. When he does uh, answer questions from uh, reporters, they're often kind of brief, and, and so Trump was much more accessible, and the Biden people are much more tightened up, and so they usually prefer their communication people to. Uh, be actually dealing with journalists instead of uh, non-coms people. Uh, so it's kind of a edict, uh, unwritten rule, or even in some cases, I think the White House tells people, if you get a question from a journalist, just route it to the comms people, which I guess I can understand why they're doing that, but it does uh, across administrations. Uh, when I call up a communications person to get comment on something, often I'm informing them because uh, things are often tightly held where they yeah. are the press office doesn't know everything that is happening across uh, a government. The rhetoric at times aimed at journalists and about journalists, certainly under the Trump administration, was heated to say the least in ways that I can't imagine you anticipated as a you know young aspiring journalist. How did you deal with that? You know dur- during that time and. Have you noticed if if the rhetoric, if the heat has been dialed down a bit since, you know, since the end of the Trump administration and since his removal from from major social platforms? In terms of how I dealt with it, I uh, try not to take any, you know, uh, attacks personally, because it's not in my interest to feel personally wounded or hurt by people criticizing my work. And so there are always going to be trolls on 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 Twitter that uh, you know want to call you names or criticize your work, and I just I choose not to engage in uh, responding because then that kind of elevates uh, that person and and so you know Trump I think called a couple of my stories he questioned whether they were right and they all you know stood up in terms of. Uh, you know, stories that he had, um, that he was responding to that I had done. There was a couple of them, including one where his um, his personal assistant, Madeline Westerhout, she had too much to drink and then started criticizing uh, Tiffany Trump and 
That was uh, a great one. That yeah. was a really epic one. <laughs> and other Trump, I think Baron Trump too, a little bit. Yeah, so I think I got written up a couple of pages in uh, Westerhout's book uh, when she, she she kind of covered that episode. And so that is, uh, you know, it's always fun to be in books, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He said when with you, his tongue in his cheek. <laughs> when you meet them, you're like, hi, I'm Daniel Lippman, page 234. <laughs> yeah, if I run across her, I'll get word that I thought she actually did a, you know, portrayed me fine. So didn't have any issues with that, really. I wanted to ask you because, you know, you're, we're talking about the tension between the Trump administration and the White House press corps and, and the healthy tension between any White House and the press corps. But Obviously, there's um, a trust deficit with the broader public and reporters. And there was that Reporters Without Borders uh, study that was uh, released this week that 59% of people polled in 28 countries claimed that journalists, quote, deliberately try to mislead the public by reporting information they know is false. What does that tell you about the state of journalism more broadly? And how does it shape how you think about your role as an ambassador for good journalism or as somebody who maybe is trying to correct that perception? I think it's a, uh, you know, it's an unfortunate uh, perception. And I think it's kind of contradicted in some ways by the huge increase in subscriptions that, you know, Washington Post, Politico, New York Times, Wall Street Journal got during the Trump years and the record amount of money and viewers that CNN and MSNBC got. And so the, I think it's kind of, there's an impact in terms of when people in power, uh, especially the, you know, Donald Trump and the Republican Party has kind of made the media the enemy, uh, even more so than sometimes Democrats. Uh, and so, um, you know, rhetoric has real consequences. And so the, you know, people would not have stormed the Capitol if Trump had not uh, kind of been feeding the fire. Uh, during the previous two months. And so I think that kind of, it puts a responsibility on journalists to try to listen to uh, everyday Americans and try to figure out how we can get the trust back. Um, I think there's been some polls that are trust went up slightly. And so, you know, in the last few years, but we all saw the media all criticized each other when after 2016, everyone was surprised Trump was elected when there was, you know, if you had been... Um, in kind of coal country or Ohio or Florida, you would not be surprised because people were saying, you know, I'm yeah. voting for Trump and Hillary can't trust her and well, she's weak and all that. And so I think journalists kind of have to tell the story and it's hard to do in terms of how you know, most journalists go into journalists for the right reasons that they just want to tell the truth and they want to you know, hold power accountable and they're not partisans. I think journalists would be wise to not get too opinionated on Twitter because often those opinions would be mm. liberal and kind of of a Upper West Side type mentality. <laughs> people who are on TV a little bit too much in terms of thinking that what they think uh, matters when, if you're an opinion journalist, of course, you know, you can say whatever you want on Twitter. But if you're a news journalist, then you have to kind of consider your tweets as a, you know, and what you say on TV in a long, long arc where um, you need to be measured in what you say and you can't be seen as t taking one side or another in terms of story selection or what you share. And so 
whatever I share is my barometer is, is it interesting? Is it new? And as someone else tweeted about it, then I will often not pull the excerpt. And so everyone should follow me on Twitter, but they should expect more of my stories than just random pontificating. So just do, do a good job. And that's the best way to cut through the, the perception. Just do good, good reporting, good journalism. That's a great point. I think at any, any given media outlet, um, we'll take, take Fox News as a very visible example. We could point to any number, you know, and we could point to any number of media outlets for, for this question. At an org, organization like Fox News, there are some solid ethical journalists, Chris Wallace, Brett Baer come to mind. Then there are people who are clearly opinionators. Uh, we all know who they are. But then there are others who are basically opinionators masquerading as real news people like uh, I'm, I'm Maria Bartiromo Mar- comes to mind, yeah. so somebody like yeah. that. But do do you think do you think that's the case at most news outlets? And what are some ways consumers of news can discern the difference? I think at most, you know, at many TV channels, there will be people who are supposed to be nonpartisan journalists. But I think they look at their audience more, and so at Fox, they're not going to have too many stories that are critical of their viewers. And so, and on other networks, you know, I'm sure that, you know, even if they do excellent work there, it's, it's sometimes hard to people who are big Trump supporters or former officials sometimes don't want to go on because it's not their type of, um, you know, audience that they want to get at. And so it's so important just to have different perspectives. And so, and, you know, intellectual journalism on the right, you know, took a big hit when the publication like the Weekly Standard closed down because that was much more self-critical of the Republican Party. And mm-hmm. it's important for both parties to have publications which criticize their own side and not just, you know, are chest beating and saying and you know trying to advantage their own side. Because in the long term of a political party. Unless you have uh, publications or outlets that uh, you know, kind of do their own self-reviews and you know self-correcting, then that's not a good recipe for a long-term success of a, a Republican Party because, or a Democratic Party, because then you get in terms of groupthink, and you just think that whatever you did before was uh, correct, and uh, so you need kind of a healthy checks and balances. Um, and for a news consumer. You know, if you're a liberal, you should be looking at Drudge. You should be looking at you know the Federalist or even places, uh, you know, like National Review or even just checking out what Fox uh, uh, is saying because that's you know Tucker Carlson show is the most popular on air and so uh, on cable. And so even if you don't agree with Tucker, I think there is uh, people. It's kind of his show is a fact of life, and they're not going to cancel his show. And so I'm not endorsing anyone watching any particular show, but just kind of knowing what the other side is watching. Or if you're a, you know, a conservative watching MSNBC or CNN, um, and you know, looking at HuffPost or The Nation, The American Prospect, that's there's value in that because then you can kind of even develop better arguments uh, for your own side if you know what the opposition is saying. So diversify your port, your news consuming portfolio. It's good. I, I, um, yeah, some of my favorite outlets right now are independent outlets like the dispatch. They're doing some good, good work, both commentary as well as 
yep. uh, reporting, uh, Bulwark, more, more commentary, uh, Charlie Sykes outlet. Um, Jessica, you, you've been at various, uh, you've been, you know, as a freelance reporter and a staff, I'm curious what your, your thoughts on that is. How, how can consumers of news be more discerning? How can we tell the difference between the example that I used before, between real journalists and opinionators masquerading as journalists? Um, I think citation is an important thing to look for. Citation of sources. The more on the record sources, the better. Um, I mean, with an understanding that not everybody's going to go on the record, and that's increasingly um, the case in political journalism. But I guess I have, I, and, and I'm sure, Daniel, you have this too. Like, I have sort of an innate meter that says, oh, wow, they're pushing a perspective here. And, and, and I don't know exactly how to put that into other people, but we need to, to kind of understand, okay, well, if my worldview is over here, then this seems, you know, just being able to identify, I think, how different schools of thought think and be able to identify, therefore, what kind of agenda is being pushed in a given article, if there is one. But if you're, you're looking for something really, really neutral or you then uh, I don't even think it's any more just who's publishing it. I don't think it's that simple anymore because there are neutral journalists at all of the outlets and then there are opinion journalists at a lot of the outlets too. No, I think that in recent years, I think the, uh, you know, especially with the rise of Twitter and cable news, journalists are defined less by their who they work for and more just kind of by their own journalistic brand. Uh, and so if you look at the Maggie Habermans or of the world or Yashar Ali, Robert Costa, yeah. Robert Costa, people who would, uh, you'll read no matter who they work for, even if they're like independent, like uh, Yashar, um, that, you know, Ben Smith, uh, you know, there's a number of others um, that, uh, you know, as they kind of jump around, you continue to follow them and they have a good reputation. And so I think having a good reputation among both sides, that's like very important, not just kind of catering to one side or the other. Right. Right. I heard you mention writers like David Brooks and Tom Friedman as the kinds of, of thinkers and writers that you aspire to or you look to their writing as, as you know, a standard. Um, what is it about their writing that inspires you or that you, you look to as, as, a, as a good example? I think with David Brooks, he was uh, he worked for the Weekly Standard before the Wall Street Journal. And so he kind of had grew up in that intellectual tradition. I just like the way he describes society. He had a book called Bobos in Paradise about you know, how the bourgeoisie were coming together as uh, kind of being merged with the you know, more people who are hippies almost. And so I uh, have always enjoyed his columns because you learn something. And so it's, it's tough being like a New York Times or Washington Post columnist where you have to produce every sometimes twice a week uh, and new ideas uh, and so the that is it's challenging and i don't know if i would ever want to make that switch but he, i think brooks once said he liked to talk to you know three politicians a day and he you know, that would inform him about what congress and what washington was working on and um, and how they thought about the world and i think he I once attended the Faith a Faith Angle Forum, uh, which is part of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, kind of a conservative think tank. 
um, focused on religious issues. And Brooks was one of the guest speakers and he talked about how he comes up with his, or how he like puts together his column ideas, which is, you, know, you look at New York Times column, uh, op-ed column, it's maybe 10 paragraphs or so, and he will have research that kind of, you know, articles, other printouts, uh, and he'll lay it on, on the ground, on, you know, on his floor. And every, uh, there'll be a small little pile for every paragraph in terms of, you know, what uh, underlies it. And so that, you know, that was a very interesting, you know, way of, kind of thinking about how to produce columns. And it feels like at the New York Times, they get life, lifelong tenure uh, as columnists. And I'm sure sometimes they kind of step away, but it's kind of hard to, it's hard to do that when you have such an influential audience and you're paid well and you're uh, at the top of your profession like that. Yeah. I was going to ask you uh, this question. I was really curious about what it's like to work at Playbook from the vantage point that I just remember seeing Mike Allen everywhere around town and just like a logistics question. How do you get everywhere in a given evening? I mean, this is all of course before COVID. Did you like have a calendar and plot out geographically? I'm going to go here for five, you know, for 15 minutes and then I'm going to go across town. I mean, you, you have to be ubiquitous. Yeah. I think it's, you're an ambassador. You're, you know, carrying the flag. And so that was just kind of a great way to meet sources. And I would, you know, go to lots of parties. And I think I stepped off Playbook almost two years ago. But in the five years that I was doing it, I, you know, it was a lot of, you know, I woke up at 3.30 to 4 a.m. to to write it uh, with Mike and then uh, Jake Sherman, Anna Palmer. And so I I guess I just don't require that much sleep. I don't (laughs) drink coffee in the morning. And so, you know, but it's, it's pretty fun. And so in terms of logistics, it was just kind of a lot of source coffees and drinks and dinners and yeah but there's a nightlife like you did have yeah. to get out and, and about yeah, for a few course. hours at night off you know not every night but the uh it can take a you know you don't want to get burnt out uh, but i think it was kind of most you know you'd have to kind of plot which parties to go to and uh when it was the christmas party season and then also the white house <laughs> correspondence dinner weekend yeah. and that's where yeah. you have you know the three parties or four parties and you can only go to two and you don't traffic is a mess. And so, but that's, you know, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, to get kind of, and I always try to like get cell phone numbers of top officials that I'm meeting so that you guys, you know, that you kind of continue to develop sources and you can try to best serve your readers by getting access to top decision makers. So it's a matter of cultivating relationships I'm curious about one aspect of it. Inevitably, you have to, there's this tension between what a communications director, the stories they want you to tell and the the, the actual story. How do you maintain those relationships you need in order to do your job as a reporter when sometimes you end up reporting a story those communications directors and elected officials don't like? I think what you tell those people is that, you know, there's going to be some good stories, there's going to be some bad stories, but it's kind of, you, you know, you win some, you lose some, you know, I, I can't only do stories that they, those people will like, because that's kind of not my role. And so I just kind of go where my tips lead me, focusing, uh, you know, trying my best to focus on kind of the personnel uh, in Washington and, you know, battles between political appointees and career officials. And so, you know, I think you just have, you, you are, 
respectful and you uh, tell the comms people or the you know politicians sometimes there's uh stories are not you're not gonna like the story but other times let's work together more or, or you know break news with me about whatever you're going to do and so that's kind of how I, I think about stuff how did you deal with that jessica is it similar just do your job you know try not to have an axe to grind um report fairly report the facts and that that would win out ultimately yeah but i can't i can't underestimate or have let the audience underestimate the pressure that they put on you to change the story or to try to you know give you a, you know, a reason why you should um be more circumspect in reporting the story i mean the, the you'll hear all kinds of reasons you know you're gonna ruin this your national security or you know i mean it's they'll throw anything at, at the if it protects their boss so yeah. yeah, it's um you gotta have a strong sense of duty to the reader or the viewer for sure. I think it's kind of just a way of you have to, you know, preserve your uh credibility and kind of be seen as a um you're almost like an umpire, you call it like it is. Uh, and there's a way to, you know, be a fair journalist without you don't want to get them you don't want them to roll over you don't want to roll over every time they say oh you know this is outrageous or you know I'm, i'll never talk to you again and which is sometimes you know funny when they when they do talk to you again um, after you print the story or they have to apologize and so that's just so is life right <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like having teenage kids parenting teenage kids yeah <laughs> i'll never speak to you again it's okay you still got to do your homework <laughs> i'm never going to come out of my room <laughs> yeah. um i wanted to ask you because i think for so many washington-based reporters january 6th is like you know it, it will live in infamy it obviously does for the country but it's very per deeply personal to many Washington political journalists. What was it like for you and how has it, in your view, changed, changed political reporting? So I was actually in, you know, I had gone to the protests about 8 a.m. or so, you know, when they were kind of streaming down various you know, avenues near the Capitol because we were, uh, we were kind of expecting that there might be, um, confrontations between lawmakers and the protesters as they went into their office buildings. And so, and so I interviewed a lot of the uh, protesters. I'm sure some of them became writers a few, a few hours later, you know, talking to people who had, you know, were living in an alternative universe uh, in terms of thinking that, oh, Mike Pence is going to change his mind or, you know, God's going to intervene to uh, throw out these electoral college votes. And it was kind of listening to people who had not, who did not trust the media and they did not believe in democracy anymore in terms of, hey, there's a process, you know, there, Bill Barr, the attorney general said there was you know, no significant fraud. And so, and he was one of Trump's guys. And so, so, you know, as I, my colleague and I, we kind of were talking to pro protesters. We didn't, you know, and we knew that Trump had encouraged people to come down to the Capitol Hill, but we were not at the you know tip of the spear. I did not you know expect them to rush the Capitol, and obviously most people did not uh, expect them to do that. If the Capitol Police were totally outnumbered uh, and they had not put the proper barriers that you you might expect, and so it was kind of a uh, something that. 
you know, of course there were warnings in terms of the, you know, Capitol Police got those types of warnings, but you know, to be fair, there's, um, there's always going to be internet chatter about this and that. And so a lot of it was just not taken seriously because you've seen these types of, uh, you had seen previous Trump protests in the previous few months, and uh, there's always going to be crazy stuff on, on the internet, on chat rooms that, where it's a lot of bravado and not actually, you know, taken out, um, you know, happens. And so sometimes you know, I kind of kick myself after because I was thinking if only I'd been at the tip of the spear, then I would have, you know, gotten the footage that the New Yorker staff writer was taking with his iPhone camera and covered them as they stormed it. But no one, I think a lot of them were surprised themselves that they actually <laughs> did storm it because they, they expected like all the rest of us that, the Capitol Police, you know, or mo- most of them, there's um, definitely some that were going to try and no matter what, um, but there's other people who are just kind of caught up in, it's like a mob mentality. And so, mm-hmm. but the, in terms of how it's changed journalism, um, I think there's kind of a, uh, a view that this is what happens when there are lies that are uh, spread unchecked. And so, uh, I don't think you're going to, I think Trump was unique. I don't think if a, uh, if Josh Hawley or Ron DeSantis gets elected and they lose re-election, they care more about their reputations and are not going to challenge the electoral college results like uh, this. And so it's been fascinating to see, you know, in the last few months, just the amount of voting restrictions that Republican state legislatures have done to roll back the pen, how the, uh, these rules that were relaxed for the pandemic that some people thought, you know, hey, it should be uh, as easy to vote as possible as provided you're not, you know, you're not committing fraud. Uh, you know, why do we, if we're not going to give election day off, a lot of people will, um, you know, wonder, you know, there's a lot of people who are uh, working nine to five jobs or minimum wage that, and they have kids that are, you know, going to school and it's kind of hard for them to, uh, you know, take off uh, an hour or two, especially if you have uh, voting stations where there's you know, hundreds of people waiting in line. That's going to take a while. And so it doesn't seem like January 6th has deterred Republicans from cracking down on uh, voting rights, at least in the states. That's interesting. As you were discussing your experience on January 6th, I'm thinking if you were afraid, frankly, of were you in harm's way that you might that you might get caught up in violence, but here you are saying, man, I, I wish I was, you know, at the point of the spear, <laughs> you know, I wish I, I could get that footage. Now, both of you have actually been in danger zones, war zones. Jessica, you, you had a question about that, right? Yeah, I did because, um, it, it was a, but it was a bug that bit me. I, I sent myself to Afghanistan in 2009 and I read that you sent yourself to the Syrian border in 2013. I was curious um, because you know, your body of work since then has largely not been that type of reporting. Um, how did you do that? And do you miss the adrenaline? Because it's a different kind of adrenaline than the kind of reporting you're doing now. That's yeah, that's kind of the fact that I went over there, um, you know, makes you less afraid when something like January 6 rolls around. And so, you know, by the time uh can My I just colleague. paint the picture though? Did you have any body armor? Had you been through like classes on um, what to do with pepper spray or or anything like that? 
Did you have any training prior to go? I had taken one, you know, training on uh, keeping safe, you know, st- staying safe in a protest zone. But okay, people didn't really expect that this would right. become so violent, where people were dying, and and so the worry is that the protesters will turn on the media. But you know, remember they were kicking AP, you know, camera equipment, and um, yeah. but a lot of the protesters they wanted the media to be there. They wanted to, they were kind of proud of what they were doing. And so they, mm-hmm. they took lots of selfies and videos of themselves in the Capitol. And so I think if someone like me had, you know, been in the Capitol kind of documenting what they were doing, I don't think they would have you know, turned on me because, you know, sometimes they would have, a lot of them were the wearing masks or like they would, they might've tried to shield themselves, but it didn't seem like many people were shielding themselves. And so, uh, and a lot of them kind of were allowed to just leave and they, so it's been painstaking process for the FBI to, you know, find everyone in every every video clip uh and i'm sure that i think like a, there's like a thousand people who stormed the capitol and they've only arrested 400 there's going to be a couple hundred that probably just get away with it because they you know just by random acts of uh you know they were lucky in terms of avoiding cameras or just not then not being able to be easily identified in a country of 320 million americans it's not like we have thank god we don't have like a system like the Chinese are building in terms of everyone is tracked all the time. You know, after when I was freelancing after college, I had seen some stories about you know, the reporters were based in Antakya, which is Antioch in ancient times. Uh, and that's it's about an hour away from the Syrian border. And I thought to myself, I want to go and you know see what the see what this is all about. And so I went there for a few days, hired a translator and did some stories on injured Syrian civilians, you know, rebel leaders, refugees. But you had no language skills to get no, there, I had right? a, and you had not ever, Arabic, so you just figured out how to do this. Arabic translator that had been recommended to me by okay. a uh, Christian science monitor reporter in based in Istanbul. And I figured I didn't, I think I had told a couple of outlets, Hey, I'm going there. I might send you some articles after, but the, it was not, I didn't kind of have contracts where, Hey, I'll write one story for the Washington post, the New York times. And my stories appeared in you know, CNN, Huffington post, uh, a Saudi newspaper. And it was kind of, I thought it was very important. And I think there was government shutdowns happening at the same time or spending you know, caps. And so it just kind of, you feel the uh, the weight of history. This is like, this really matters. This is much more important yeah. than Washington bickering over, you know, fiscal policy, even though that's important too, but this is, uh, this will be remembered. And, you know, it was just such a tragedy. And I thought I could help bring some small attention and light to my stories and, uh, you know, through my stories to that situation. And so uh, it's definitely kind of an adrenaline rush and, you want to stay safe. So that's why I didn't cross the border. It's no story is worth losing one's life over getting kidnapped. And I don't think I had ransom insurance, which is a real thing. And so, yeah. and so you, it's, uh, you don't want to stay too long because then you kind of people who are have nefarious purposes, they're uh, more apt to say, well, what's a tall white dude, you know, who happens to be Jewish? Uh, if you look, my last name is more. Yeah, they didn't yeah. know my. Uh, maybe they just did not know that I was Jewish. And so, you know, why? Why is he? Uh, you know, going to this the same cafe all the time. And so that's why it's kind of in and out. And so, 
but I really admire what, you know, foreign reporters do and made some friends on that trip that I still stay in touch with. But it's, it's also frustrating that, I mean, the conflict is still going on these yeah. many, you know, seven, eight years later. And so did my stories make an impact or did they, were they kind of, you know, little like rocks that just drop in a, or like trees that fall in forest that don't get noticed. But like totality, I did my small part in, mm-hmm. in, in bringing light to it, a very important humanitarian crisis. Has that affected or, or how has that impacted, if in any way, your political reporting? I mean, I think there's a real distinction because I felt it when, when I went to Afghanistan between the conversation around these conflicts in Washington and the conflict uh, and the conversation that's happening in the region. And they're often really divorced of each other because the, the pros and cons are, are very different. But until you see it for yourself, you don't really know how much more humanity is on the line. It's, it's, it's not just, um, you know, it's less policy, more people when you get on the ground. Yeah. Just wondering how that impacted you later on. At the time, a lot of journalists were thinking to themselves who were actually there, why isn't there, why isn't the U.S. Uh, even putting a no-fly zone uh, to prevent, you know, Syrian military from, you know, bombing uh, civilians uh, that you're meeting the casualties of? And so some mm-hmm. things that kind of feel more obvious when you're on the ground there. But in terms of how it's impacted my political reporting, it's hard to say exactly, but it kind of puts things in perspective that, you know, when I'm doing a political story, it's within kind of the bounds of democratic norms and that, you know, we're not fighting each other in the streets. You're not, mm-hmm. we're not, you don't see senators can- caning each other on the Senate floor anymore. And so the physical element of that type of danger is, is gone in terms of, uh, you know, it kind of makes, makes you tr- treasure democracy more when you've seen when there's no democracy, what happens, uh, and when there's not respect for individual rights, and uh, when people feel the need to have to fight for their own uh, rights against a brutal dictator. So I guess term limits are important for the presidency. <laughs> um, and, you know, the free press and the courts and all of the uh, democratic norms. And so that's why during the you know, Trump years, there was, um, you know, obviously those you know, people worried about would the courts buckle or, you know, is, yeah. is democracy at risk? But, you know, I was more optimistic because a lot of these things are well-established. And so, you know, if the Supreme Court says something, you know, they're not going to, um, you saw that they, Trump's people, uh, the people that put Trump on, uh, the, that he put on the court, even they were not going to, you know, mm-hmm. save him. So. It's interesting and encouraging. The conservative legal movement was one of the great heroes of this last chapter. You know, even Trump appointed judges from the the challenges between Election Day and January 6th, his own uh, Supreme Court justi- uh, justices. Um, they were the ones who were the bulwark against, yeah. you know, something, a very different looking um, democracy <laughs> taking over, uh, if you can call it that. I think it's a matter of kind of they have the long view and you know people who are lawyers they if, if there's no evidence to support voter fraud like they're not going to say well you know their their clerks are not going to write those types of rulings and you know the clerks are the ones often doing the work and so they have to think about their own careers too and you know we still live in democracy and so that type of stuff is not rewarded yeah 
good journalism is sometimes referred to as the first draft of history. Looking back at your body of work, which pieces do you think will be referred back to as part of the historical record? You had mentioned one, your, yeah. your work overseas, but. I think I've kind of been, um, you know, trying to think about what stories are, you know, long lasting. I think often stories that are in, uh, you know, magazine stories, you know, I did a piece about how the uh, last year about what the, uh, you know, Confederate or the descendants of Confederate generals have to say uh, who are, whose ancestors are named uh, on those military bases. And so no one had really mm -hmm. talked to them about, hey, what do they think? And it turns out there were varying uh, opinions. And so that kind of added to the conversation. Um, and I think that piece, if you read that in 10 years, it'll still be interesting and new and it's not a, you know, this person got this job, and, uh, you know, a, a type of story that is, uh, doesn't uh, live on in terms of being as relevant. But the, um, you know, I did a story in um, the 2016 campaign about kind of counting Trump's misstatements and lies and finding that every, you know, few minutes he was saying something untrue. And then it declined and he became less truthful, you know, six months later during the campaign. And so, that was, um, you know, President Obama referred to that piece. And of course, everyone knew, you know, he was, they would have individual fact checks, but we kind of reviewed, you know, a few months of stuff, or I think it was actually one week of, of, of stuff that they would say and tweet about. And so that kind of, I'm proud of that piece. And I think it's the, you know, I did a story about how the Trump transition was warned hey, there's going to be, you know, there could be a 1918-style pandemic and during the transition between Obama and Trump, and that didn't, they kind of put that in the back of their mind for <laughs> until it actually hit. And so yeah. there was, could stuff have been done differently? Could we have worked with China to develop better partnerships to combat these types of things and nip them at the bud? And so the, all these are kind of unknowable questions, but the historical record, hey, the Trump team at least was warned. I'm sure that there's going to be warnings uh, about future things that become a problem. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if you guys watch and read The Looming Tower, that's uh, plenty of warnings. Even Obama saying North Korea is going to be your biggest yeah. challenge. Well, I guess it, you know, didn't turn out to be, but you know, it was one of the challenges for that, that Trump faced. For sure. I'm curious, actually, from, from both of you, how speaking of COVID uh, and the pandemic, how that, what kinds of new obstacles that created for you? Like, you know, we talked before about how you cultivate relationships and cultivate sources. Did it make things more difficult for you to do your day-to-day -day work? I think it, it definitely did. And to some extent, because you're not meeting as many new people and you're not, you know, getting tips as much in person uh, that I would usually get. And so, that, you know, that's why I was fortunate to have a lot of sources going into the pandemic where, you know, if they have my phone number, I had their phone number, then we can come work together. So that's one, you know, that's going to be a perk of American DC reopening where people are less worried about getting coffee and all of that. But if someone has a story that they want to tell, you know, get told, my phone number's on my, my Twitter bio. And so they will, they know how to get in touch with you. And so 
but it definitely kind of makes it more challenging, especially I feel bad for, you know, reporters who are just going into their, their beats or into the profession or, you know, people switching, you know, getting new jobs where they haven't even met most of their colleagues. Yeah. I mean, I would echo that and just add maybe that, um, you have to work doubly hard just to even stay out of your own bubble or what's sort of created by the people that you not spend time with in your personal life. Um, because that's a danger too, or, or even in your neighborhood. I mean, I'm out in the suburbs, that's a different vibe than, um, than a lot of the, and I, I have government folks and people in, in, in government in my neighborhood, but you know, I, I can walk by their house, but the, the proximity and the sort of way you're kind of get, you have to struggle against tunnel vision is definitely a factor. I did. I had a question about uh, Derek Chauvin, and that was probably mm. the last, you know, kind of to wrap things up. That was obviously the big verdict. We we saw how Biden handled it um, beforehand and since with his public announcements. I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are or what your if you've done actual reporting on the decision making that went on inside the White House to decide when to have the president initially comment about the Derek Chauvin verdict and how do you see this kind of playing out or moving forward? Because it does seem like they're very openly pushing, obviously, for legislation. Um, but there's a real delicate balance to be a voice on race, something that even President Obama was very hesitant to do. No, yeah, that's a great uh, you know question. I don't have like specific reporting about how you know why and how Biden, but and the Biden team decided to weigh in, but I think they felt like it was an, an important moment in our country when you have a, a, a cop who is uh, held responsible for this type of action, which uh, you know, had such ramifications around the world. Uh, and so you know, I think there was some criticism of him before, well, you know, during the, when the jury was sequestered saying, I'm hoping for the, the right verdict because Trump would get uh, criticized when he would want to weigh in or he would kind of tip the scales. And so obviously mm-hmm. they didn't hear what Biden said, but it's symbolic. And so you want to, he might not have um, said that, but I, uh, in the future, but I think, um, you know, because those are important norms to hold fast to that you want juries to kind of consider the evidence and then make their own decision. But the, you know, Biden team feels like the, uh, you know, that they need to kind of use this moment uh, to try to get some reforms of how police work and that everyone, they in the White House, they they are largely of the belief that, you know, the vast majority of cops are doing, they do a good job, they want to protect the public, but there are going to be, uh, but the, they kind of have closed ranks before and that there Mm -hmm. are, I won't use the term like bad apples because, it feels like these things have happened, you know, uh, there's been so many uh, police shootings um, that, you know, need investigations and uh, that appear, you know, why didn't the police hold their fire? Why didn't they use a taser? Or, you know, why are they pulling off, pulling around a, um, you know, an African-American soldier and treating him horribly? And so I think they, they don't want to let this opportunity go to waste in terms of uh, delivering some reform uh, of the system and kind of making potentially making it easier to sue police departments, maybe instead of uh, individual cops. And so that, that qualified immunity is 
probably going to get changed. It just depends on if they can get enough votes in the Senate. And I mean, it's not a budgetary issue, so it can't be snuck in through reconciliation, but um, they're going to try their hardest to get that passed. But they also have so many other priorities that they're trying to pass at the same time. Yeah, it is interesting. When the jury's decision was announced, it was one of those moments like January 6th, where I thought reasonable people can agree on certain things. Like the process was followed. Justice was carried out in a proper way. You know, there was so much evidence that supported the the final ruling. You know, just like January 6th, this is, you know, reasonable people can agree that mobs storming the Capitol is, is a bad thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and yet that day in both instances, narratives were already forming that there were these bubbles in which narratives were already forming like on january 6th that day i was listening to will cow uh and levin uh, to, to your point the point that you made before about diversifying your news consumption and commentary consumption portfolio and that day those talking points were already emerging like where was your outrage when um you know they referred XYZ. to violence in, in portland and um it, well, what did you expect? Because the election was stolen. And, you know, there, there were certain talking points that were already emerging that day. And uh, it can be discouraging. But I, I think a, a large uh, majority of, of reporters, journalists, commentators were, you know, could say, you know what, justice was done, that the process was followed. This was a fair trial. You know, the system we, worked. The yeah. system worked. We We don't have to I don't know. It, it, it was just sometimes it's discouraging to hear that that folks are looking for these threads to pull in order to keep a level of vitriol at a certain level, you know, so that that was part of part of my. But for the most part, again, it was, you know, this this is this is justice working. So um, sorry not to put too much my own my own commentary on that, but it was uh, just an observation about how the news have how, how, how some stories emerge and narratives emerge and quickly congeal. And I'll ask sort of a similar question um, that I just asked Jessica, if we forgot to ask anything, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I don't think so. This has been a great conversation. So yeah. thank you so much. Daniel, when are you going to write a book? Yeah. When are you going to write a book? <laughs> I'll give you guys the exclusive on that. <laughs> yeah, um, let's break some news, buddy. Come on. You have a contract? <laughs> I will, you know, I, you know, I notice you've been of, talking to a lot of publishers lately. I have for, for my, stories. For various That's stories. a good cover story. Yeah, <laughs> good, good, good contacts that I've been developing. So when I do, if I ever do want to write a book, I, you know, I'll know a bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have uh, one last question and one piece of business? Did you have any questions for us? Uh, no, I just I uh, am eager to kind of listen to your podcast and see how it develops and you know, excited and honored to have been uh, invited on. Yeah. Thanks for giving us some time. This was a great conversation and yeah. it was great to follow up on an earlier conversation we had with Julie Mason, uh, another, you know, great supporter of, of good journalism and good journalists. So we really appreciate it. Uh, before we go, how can our audience find you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at D Lipman, D L I double P M A N. Um, and they can also email me at daniel at Terrific. Jessica, it's fun hanging out with you as always. 
it's we're keeping it real. Keeping I noticed real. nobody screamed. It was a it was a magical hour. Oh, There's that's no because screaming. that's because Ronnie wasn't here. My dad is our sometime <laughs> co-host. So uh, if we if we had him, then uh, <laughs> yeah, the spit would be flying. Uh, Daniel, thanks again for doing this. I really, Thank really you. appreciate it. Yeah. Of course. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.